all the nasty stuff that we do when we're stressed really stems from uncertainty. We have a hard time predicting what's going to happen next or predicting what we should do. And then we feel anxious and it brings out the worst in us. And uncertainty can turn us into monsters. Welcome to the On Wisdom Podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next half an hour, we will be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We'll discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. Today, we are very excited to have Tessa West with us. Tessa is a professor of psychology at New York University and a leading expert in the science of interpersonal communication. Her research focuses on questions such as how can we improve communication across cultural and national divides. Tessa's work has been covered in The Scientific American, The New York Times, The Huffington Post, Time Magazine, The Guardian, and the U.S. Supreme Court. Wow. She is a regular contributor to The Wall Street Journal and the author of the book Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them. Tessa, welcome to the show. Great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Um, yeah, we are too. Uh, one thing I just wanted to, like, before we get into it, I'm sure you've been asked this question before, but um, so writing the book that you've recently written, Jerks at Work, um, how has it made you a better colleague? And I mean, I suppose the follow-up question is, if we had colleagues of yours here, would they say it's made you a better colleague? <laughs> Maybe it's made me a scarier colleague. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, in, in all honesty, I think when I wrote this book, part of my goal was to you know, self-reflect a little bit about the things I was doing at work that weren't awesome and that, Mm. you know, people weren't super comfortable even telling me about. And I think, you know, as we kind of climb up at work, we get more expertise, but also Mm. we have power over people. We don't often realize the things that we're doing that negatively impact people. And, And one thing I really learned leading up to this book was, you know, I helped run the social program at NYU and I was doing stuff that upset people, but they never really told me about. Mm. I kind of just had to read the tea leaves a little bit, see mm. people get upset about things or nervous to talk to me, you know, afraid to tell me things. Mm. And and that really was a wake up call for me that I was being a jerk at work sometimes and mm. no one was really telling me. And I think, you know, writing this book helped me realize what my weaknesses were. And we all have Mm. And, you know, my hope for other people is they can read this and feel a little bit uncomfortable and see themselves in some of these chapters and think, ooh, right. I definitely can relate <laughs> to the, the bad guy in that story. Right. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, for sure. So, so, um, so what, what of the sort of, and we'll get into this in a bit more detail later, but like, who, who of the kind of um, jerks at work do you see most of your former self in? I'm going to say former self because I'm sure all that's been resolved now. <laughs> We're all work in progress, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've definitely been the bulldozer. So the person who just really has their heart and head set on an agenda, um, you know, especially I oversaw running a a move, which in academia is always kind of a big deal. We freak out when we have to move offices. And I saw myself really trying to ram ideas down other people's throats. Um, So that, that person, especially when you're in power, and you have an agenda, and you're really driven, like most of us academics have a hard time just kind of, you know, pulling off the brakes a bit. Mm. I've definitely been the bulldozer. I've also been the neglectful boss. When I was writing this book during the <laughs> pandemic with a nine-year-old right. at home, I was pretty neglectful of some of my grad students and some of their projects, so I can relate to that one as well. Right. So, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're going to come back to this, but, like, some of them are sort of uh, extreme versions, like, one end of the spectrum versus the other, like a micromanager versus a neglectful boss, you know, being towards one end of the spectrum, either way is bad, right? 
Yeah, I think either way is bad. And I actually think often what you find is those two things co-occur in people. Most neglectful bosses are also micromanagers. And most micromanagers are also neglectful bosses because when they're micromanaging one person, they tend to neglect other people or jobs. Um, So I think sometimes, ironically, what you can get is like two bad Two bad jerks that were kind of rolled into one. Um, they're they're opposite sides of the same coin. Brilliant. Well, I just was keen to know, but thank you for sharing that. Um, and I'll hand over to Igor to get into some of the wisdom questions. Igor. Yeah, thank you so much, Tessa. So we will get to the specifics of the different types of jerks that we may or may not have at work. And it's interesting that you mentioned uh, that some of them may be overlapping and uh, coexisting even within the same person. But before we do that, uh, we want to take a little detour and talk a little bit about uh, the concept of wisdom itself and uh, your take on it. So this is our standard set of questions. Um, and I'm curious how you we win potentially the different jerks and uh, how not to be a jerk from one station to the next. So here it goes. Uh, wisdom can mean many different things, and we want to know what does it mean to you. For instance, is there anything about wisdom that you may think may be overlooked, or perhaps counterintuitive, or otherwise uh, not something that's on people's minds immediately? Yeah, I, I love this question. I think for me, wisdom is um, actually having a healthy dose of humility and not assuming that you know anything. Um, it's kind of the wisdom is really acknowledging what you don't know and acknowledging when you're going to have to ask for clarification. Um, I do a lot of research on interpersonal accuracy, how good we are at reading other people's thoughts and feelings. And one thing I've learned in that work is the wisest people, the people who are the best at this, who are the most empathic, who are the best at reading the room or knowing what other people are thinking and feeling aren't those that have some kind of magical knowledge that the rest of us don't. They're the ones who are humble enough just to ask, mm. what's going on with you? What did you mean by that? Can you explain that more? I think I misunderstood you. Um, that sort of level of humility, I think, is actually really required to be good at work and to just be good at reading other people. And it's it's a trait that tends to be undervalued because we focus so much on skill sets that are associated with being really good at these things, being charismatic right. leaders, reading people well. And I really don't think that there's much to say. There's much about that that is that really rings true, at least, you know, in basic social psychology. I think it's about humility and asking and not assuming you know things. So it's just like one follow up on that, because it sounds like uh, when you say humility, you mean both of these kind of intellectual and the more... Uh, moral, uh, interpersonal aspect to it. Uh, so what do you think is uh, the role of morality? Is it, uh, is it sort of necessary to be a morally good person, to be a wise co-worker? I love, this, boss? I, I love this question about morality. My lab right now, we're studying what happens when you work with someone who violates moral code, mm-hmm. who does something immoral and how you behave right. towards that person. And um I think the the irony here is, um, I'd say, you know, morality is an eye of the beholder. I think we're in an age now where people are a little bit overly moralized and unforgiving um, to the point where people would rather freeze than, than try to take action often in the workplace. And we're seeing this in a lot of places. But I think what we're finding in our research actually is people think they're going to be very punitive around 
people who are immoral and we hold these super high moral standards. But when you actually interact with a moral violator, you bend over backwards and you're nice to them. <laughs> we haven't published this work yet. So, you know, take this with a grain of salt. But it, it turns out that this whole idea of morality, especially morality in the workplace, sounds great on paper. But in the real world, um, we're uncomfortable with confrontation around morality, mm. sort of lives in Twitter, lives on, you know, social media. In person, we do the opposite. We're actually more accommodating to immoral people, partly because that's what we do when we feel uncomfortable in general. So I, I tend to try to get people away from this argument of like, you're not being a moral person, um, right. you know, or if one, one mistake happens, that means that you're sort of, you're done. We should mm -hmm. give up on you. Mm -hmm. I think that's a problematic perspective, but I, I realize that my, my take on morality is probably a little bit different than most. That's really interesting. So, yeah, because you would expect moral moral transgressions would be punished, but you're saying, in fact, it often leads to like even more generous charitable behavior. That's that is surprising. <laughs> yeah, it leads. I, I don't know if general gen, uh, charitable is the right word. I probably kind of misdescribed this, but nicer behavior. Mm. So, you know, we know from some of the work of Wendy Mendez and others that when we're uncomfortable, you know, interacting with anyone from a different race person to a stigmatized person, mm. we tend to bend over backwards. You know, she has a paper called Brittle Smiles. You're overly nice to people when you're uncomfortable. Mm. And that's kind of mm. what we see with moral violators. Mm. You know, we you walk into an interaction with someone who tweeted something really strange and immoral and you, you know, are the first to make an offer in a negotiation and you're kind of really friendly towards that person. And, and these are people who all anticipated hating this person. Mm. You know, they said in anticipation, oh, I, I want nothing to do with them. And then you put them in the interaction. They're like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> oh, my gosh, it's so great to meet uh -huh. you because we don't handle discomfort well. Mm. And I think this is true when it comes to all kinds of awkward social situations and immoral people is just another example of that. Okay, so so um, if and this is is a kind of I guess kind of a ridiculous question, really, because there's so many different ways this could go. But like, if you were to to pick one thing that you would suggest people could do to help them make wiser decisions, uh, or or maybe even why act more wisely, um, you know, you, you there's lots of ways this can go. But you know, what do you think might be the most helpful bit of advice you could provide? Yeah, I love this question. What's how can we all be wiser? Um, mm. The answer is going to seem weird. So I, I actually think, and like all my answers so far, <laughs> um, we need to learn how to have conflict um, right. in a in a better way. And and I would go so far as to not even call it conflict. I think a lot of the problems we face at work, in life, in communications in general, happen because we wait too long things get bad. There's a lot of miscommunication and we don't learn how to give feedback to people in a constructive way or ask for it in a way that isn't super threatening or derails the relationship. And I think we, if we just turn to the, the you know, research on how people get over fights in marriages and, and in families and stuff like that, it's really useful for becoming wiser and smarter, learning how to have conflict early and often and not even calling it conflict, but just calling it communication. I think especially since we're all working hybrid and we're sort of all hanging on a thread with our relationships with each other anyway, that is essential to becoming wiser at work. And, and it's really about biting the bullet and being clear and asking for information that you might not want to learn about yourself, which is hard and uncomfortable. 
and making the person giving it to you not feel like if they answer accurately or honestly, they're going to get fired or you're going to explode on them. So I really think it, it comes down to how to have better conflict resolution, how to communicate more clearly. Mm. And again, that's interesting because that relates to what you are saying before about one of the reasons we might um, be nicer to people that have transgressed morally or, you know, is because we... We really are afraid of conflict, but if, if we were better at it, then it might feed into us <laughs> being more punishing towards immoral behavior as yeah, well. Yeah, and we have to ask for it too. So we're getting a little taste of our own medicine. We can't think of ourselves as just, I'm going to vomit my opinions onto the world, but never ask for it back, which a lot of us actually do, I think. And I'm guilty of that too. I think most of us are. If we're to switch from the individual to the structural level of our communities, what do you think? would lead us to make wiser decisions as a society? Yeah, I think, you know, the burden really is on structural changes to to move the needle on a lot of even these interpersonal things I'm talking about. I'm a huge fan of super clear policies and procedures that are applied everywhere in the same way. I think, you know, this sounds obvious, but a lot of people don't really do this very often. They sort of post hoc come up with rules and procedures to justify decisions. I mean, even in academia, when we do academic job searches, which are a big deal, we don't do them that often. You know, it's like once every five years or something. Right. I've sat on a lot of these committees. They're, they're kind of a disaster. They're, there's not really sets of rules and procedures that are applied equally to all candidates in different circumstances. You know, and I think having that kind of institutional memory and just being really, I don't know, um, just almost like bullheaded about this insistence on following procedures is something that we need more of. And I think a lot of people don't do it because they get pushed back, especially in academia. We sort of hate being told what to do. Um, and I really think if we have these clear procedures and policies, we wouldn't be in a lot of the messes we're in. And I think even Things as simple as like fishing out free riders on teams could be done very effectively if you just had a policy around documenting work people agree to do versus, you know, work they did and they didn't agree to do. Simple steps like that can actually um, move mountains when it comes to these things. But it takes work and it takes a lot of thankless labor um, and it takes sort of seeing problems before they crop up and being able to build policies and procedures to prevent those problems from cropping up. But, you know, um, Jay Van Bibel and I wrote a piece once for the Wall Street Journal on, like, how to get rid of bias in hiring. It's just, it's not about individual behaviors at all. It's about these policies and procedures that measure pipelines and, you know, all this kind of business. Um, but, you know, that's just something that I think people all have to be on board with. And you can't get a lot of pushback from the sort of old guard who is used to not having been told what to do or why are we doing it this way now? And what is the issue? You don't trust me. You know, those kinds of things you really have to battle um, when, when you start doing this from scratch. I suppose also some people might feel that there's like it's draining the experience that like um, of its humanity. It's like, oh, well, this could just be a, a computer could like take these decisions, you know, but we're missing that sort of human judgment aspect of it. Would you get some pushback in that regard? Yeah, I mean, this is so interesting. I'm doing research now on AI bias in um, in hiring, especially, you know, with like LinkedIn recruiter and programs like that that use these algorithms. And, you know, people kind of want to have it both ways. They want to reduce the human labor by introducing AI programs to automatize a lot of the stuff. 
But then when the decisions don't favor their outcomes, that's when they cry bias. It's never during the process. It's always when they're unhappy with the outcome. And I think we have to be a little bit harder on ourselves about not crying bias when we don't like that we got denied the mortgage, right? But being fine with it as long as we're benefiting from those algorithms. So, you know, I'm 100% on board with you that these these AI programs can, they can, you know, disrupt this process and be useful, but we have to interrogate them the same way from the beginning to the end, regardless of the outcomes that they produce or, you know, not even waiting to see what the outcomes they produce are before we interrogate what they're doing for us. I want to push back a little bit. Uh, so it sounded like you said that we need people to follow the we, we need to establish rules and we need people to follow through those rules consistently. But what if the rules that have been set up previously just don't go um, with the times we live in or don't apply equally to all groups? In short, when do we need to uh, break the rules? Yeah, I love this too. Not all rules, a lot of rules should be broken. And there's like letter of the law versus spirit of the law issues as well, right? And kind of knowing the difference between those things. And I've certainly been in situations where someone was following the letter of the law and it was extremely costly to our department in both in terms of time and resources and money and reputation when they should have been following the spirit of the law. So I think, you know, one thing that's key here is that the decision makers at the table who are creating these rules need to be rotating It needs to involve the voices of people who don't necessarily hold power, but are well-connected and are representative. And I think one thing that we aren't great at doing, and this is true in industry and in academia, is creating groups of decision makers that are diverse, not just in terms of, you know, the racial, ethnic, gender makeup, but also just in terms of their career stage and who's in their social network, you know, whose voices they represent. Um, and I think, you know, with a lot of rulemaking, and this is especially going on right now in diversity and inclusion and sort of revamping how we're thinking about that. Yeah. So I think, you know, just to get back to your question, when do you break the rules? You break the rules when they only advantage or apply to a select group of people in a systematic way. They no longer actually apply to everyone or they systematically disadvantage or advantage certain groups. And to re- to break those walls down and build them back up, you need to have these voices from different like areas, different walks of life. And I think, you know, one thing that I try to do is encourage people when you're building these groups that are making rules, have the members democratically elected by their own people, you know, by their own cohort, their own teams, whoever works with them. Um, And then then you'll know they'll be more representative and then the rules will be more representative and they'll make sense for more people, which I think is sort of what the fundamental goal is. We've picked out um, a few. I mean, you've done you've done a lot of work in lots of different areas, so it's, it was a little tricky to know where, which part to come at. But like, we picked out some that we think kind of resonate with the theme of the podcast, and um, we want to transition to those now. So, obviously, you've written this book, um, Jerks at Work, and so let, let's uh, start by looking at wisdom in the workplace. So, this is going to be a mouthful of a question, but. What I want you to do, ideally, is if you could tell us about the, the seven different types of troublesome colleagues that we, we might have to face, um, and also how your approach of looking at the motivations that drive bad behavior was particularly helpful when you were thinking about this. Sure. So I can give you kind of the elevator pitch for each of the seven. Um, yeah, I think everyone's going to be that. listening, and they're going to want to know, like, which one am I? So Yeah, which one yeah. are you? Which one do you hate the most? <laughs> <laughs> 
So the first one, um, this is that person who the boss loves. They know how to get ahead. They're very skilled. Um, they kind of, they know how to play the game at work, but they tend to be disruptive. They, you know, they can torture or, you know, uh, disrespect the people who work at the same level as them and the people beneath them. And, you know, my first encounter with one of these was like selling shoes. So in sales, you see a lot of these, but I think they cut across a lot of industries. The kind of most two-faced type of jerk at work. Um, the next one is the credit stealer. And the credit stealer, I think we're all pretty familiar with this person. They tend to be a friend, a coworker, a boss even, who takes credit for your hard work and your good ideas. And they often do it behind the scenes when you're actually not there to kind of monitor it. And they're mostly doing it for, to get ahead. Um, it's a strategy of kind of succeeding in the workplace. The next one is the um, free rider. Free riders, I described this a little bit earlier, they, they tend to have a lot of charisma. They are well-liked, they're fun, they have a lot of good gossip, people enjoy having them on teams, and they tend to do very little work and get credit for it, and they have this magical skill of actually selecting teams that are really conscientious, that work well together, that will you know take up all of the slack for their work that they're not doing. And really just capitalizing on, on teams like that. So if you work in a wonderful team where everybody loves each other and trusts each other, like you're going to be the perfect victim for, for a free rider at work. Uh, then we have a bulldozer. So this is the one that I turned into <laughs> when I was running the, the social side program in a way. Bulldozers tend to have some power at work or they at least used to in the past. They, they, they bulldoze in the moment, so they tend to talk over others. They interrupt people. We all knew who this person was during the pandemic where our whole Zoom screen would just be one person's head the whole time. But I think the worst thing they do is they actually go behind the scenes and question the process through which groups made decisions when they don't like the outcome. So they know who empowered to go to to complain and say things like, oh, I don't think we all knew what we were talking about or we didn't have enough time or no one knew what that vote was really about, stuff like that. And that's t that tends to be how they're disruptive and teams often in an impasses and things like that with one of these folks. Then the last three types I talk about are all bosses. So the first four are coworkers, the last three are bosses. So we have the micromanager, kind of the classic, everything is equally urgent. Everything is equally important. It doesn't really, they're very bad at kind of ordering tasks and knowing relevance, um, knowing when to, you know, step back and when to really pay attention um, micromanagers tend to have a, either a fear of failure or just like very little experience in managing, but they were really good at your job. So now they're going to micromanage you. And then we have the neglectful boss who tends to also have some micromanaging tendencies. So most neglectful bosses kind of follow this pattern of disappearing for a long period of time, freaking out and panicking because they weren't in the loop and then showing up at the 11th hour, you know, being super controlling and then disappearing again. So their behavior is really about, you know, their own kind of emotion management, their own anxiety um, management. And you get to be on the receiving end of that, which sucks for people. And then the last type is kind of the most clinical. That's the gaslighter. Um, and I know this word is really thrown around a lot right now. It's in the zeitgeist. Uh, the way I talk about it is they have kind of two key traits. So the first is that they lie with the intention of like building an alternative reality. So we're not talking about a bunch of white lies or small lies that are unrelated. These lies are all related. They build an alternative reality to either hide something from you or, you know, keep you um, hidden from others. And then they cut you off socially so that you stop being asked to go to dinners and lunches and communicating with other people. 
they spread a reputation about you that, you know, you're no good and shouldn't be interacted with, or they tell you that you should hide yourself from other people. So you find yourself talking to your gaslighter and only your gaslighter at work. And I think, you know, that they, they cause the most psychological damage. Um, so those are the seven types. And then you asked about... Yeah, it was, it was that, you know, this when you've been thinking about strategies that you can advise people about how best to manage these folks, mm-hmm. you've, you've looked particularly at the motivations that are driving their behavior as a sort of a keystone to, to make sense of how you might respond to them. Um, so, um, so that, that, yeah, so how, why is that such a fruit, fruitful approach in terms of looking at their motivations? Yeah, I think most of us, when we're victimized by people like this, we tend to think that they have certain motives. They're out to get us. They want to destroy us. And, you know, we use those motives to then try to plan our next move, how to outmaneuver them or to stand up to them. And I actually don't think there's a lot of utility in that approach. I think the more you can understand the broader framework in which these people work and why they're doing what they're doing, the more likely it is that you can develop a strategy that will actually be effective. And I think, you know, a lot of these jerks, the things that they do, I mean, I'm using the word jerk very lightly here. I actually don't even think it's the best word. It just translates to the most languages. So that's what it got sure. me. <laughs> but, <laughs> it rhymes but, with work as well. Which is yeah, nice. yeah, and it perfect. sort of rhymes with work. Um, yeah. yeah, but I think, you know, a lot of them are doing things that are also disruptive to them that these strategies aren't good for them. Being a micromanager doesn't help you really advance your career, for instance, you know? And I think we overestimate the degree to which they are doing these things intentionally to harm us and underestimate the degree to which their behaviors result from situational circumstances, but also more likely their own boss. So almost all of these jerks, especially the bosses, the reason why they're behaving this way, with with the gaslighters an exception, they're kind of their own thing, is that they're getting certain kinds of information or pressures from the top down that is enabling their behavior or perpetuating bad cycles of behavior that they're having a hard time getting out of themselves. And I think the more you understand those causes, the better your, your ability to develop a strategy that's going to be you know, bespoke toward, to that particular problem and not just, they hate me, screw them, how can I get rid of them, which tends to be where most of us are psychologically when we've had enough. So, so it's kind of, it's probably less personal than you think. They're not really out to get you. They're just, they too are in a system. And if you can understand the sort of levers and pressures on them in the system, you, you might have a better way, a better understanding of how you could respond to it. Yeah, I think that that's kind of the most generous interpretation is that they are a product of the system. And the ones who are out to get you, I think it's useful to know if they're just out to get you or if they have a history of you know, so-called being out to get people. Sometimes it's good to know if you're the only target, which suggests something just much more relational going on with this person, or if they have a history of this type of behavior, and it really doesn't have to do with you. It has a lot more to do with them. And I think a lot of us don't really interrogate that question very much. You know, am I the only one that's being treated this way? Sometimes we're too embarrassed to talk about it. We feel stupid. We feel humiliated. So we don't actually reach out to people who used to work with this person or still do or left or whatever to really figure out just how widespread the issue really is. Tessa, when I think of the ideas behind all of those jerks, the seven types, it seems to me on the very superficial big picture level, uh, there's some kind of incredible uncertainty around those people that they just like they're unsure what to do. That's why I would either micromanage or maybe I just avoid thinking about it or 
I will bulldoze ahead in order to really get everything, all the ducks in a row. Uh, is there something behind that? There is some kind of a, a sense of um, uncertainty about the self, about uh, where you as a boss potentially are standing or as a co-worker? Yeah, I love this question because I think uncertainty is like the death of us at work. I think, you know, I study a lot of stress and stress contagion and the biggest predictor of all that and all the nasty stuff that we do when we're stressed, including micromanaging and neglecting, really stems from uncertainty. Where we don't, we have a hard time predicting what's going to happen next or predicting what we should do. And we feel uncertain and we feel anxious, we feel anxious and it brings out the worst in us. And these behaviors are often exactly that. I think you're absolutely right that uncertainty can turn us into monsters. You know, some of us crumble under that uncertainty and withdraw from people. So we become free riders and neglectful bosses. And a lot of us, the way we deal with that uncertainty is to try to gain control in other domains. We micromanage people, we bulldoze, we credit steal in an effort to do whatever we can to reduce that uncertainty of how to get ahead or how to make it work. And, you know, I, I, If I could have like a thesis for life at work, it would be like you have to reduce uncertainty-based stress because it, it is, I think, you know, it's probably an overstatement, but it's one of the biggest sources of stress, of like low-level chronic stress at work and all the negative things that spill out of that, including our treatment of others and then all the yucky health stuff like, you know, obesity and drinking problems mm. and you know, being mean to our spouses and kids and all that kind of stuff that happens when we feel stressed at work. So, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. But you know, for me, this presents uh, presents a, a an incredible paradox uh, because the work, um, any any type of work, is inherently uncertain. Be it in science, be it in the business world, be it if you work for an NGO, uh, there will always be things that are unexpected that don't go according to the plan. Where uh, some uh, coworker will uh, call in sick and. Um, You have to be prepared for that. And yet, as you're saying, that that is what potentially breaks this jerks to shine, unfortunately. What can we do about that? Yeah, I think, you know, what's interesting is you can actually move the needle on this by making a bunch of small little things. And I think you're right. It, it, at some level, there's going to always be some minimum amount of uncertainty. And in certain industries, more than others. But you have to actually create certainty where you can. There's actually kind of this like really interesting research that if you can create certainty in people's everyday daily creature comforts, things that they can actually control and have autonomy over that don't actually seem that important but really add up, that can make people feel much less stressed at work. So I think one study found that like if people can control the temperature of their offices, mm. you know, j just being uncertain. I know the way this is in New York City of whether it's going to be 60 degrees in my office or 85 degrees in my office rises my blood pressure. Or if I drive to work and I say I work somewhere in the Midwest and I don't know if I'm going to find a parking spot in five minutes or 45 minutes, mm. you know, what, what's your traffic pattern is going to look like? Where can you choose where to cater lunch? These little tiny things that don't seem to matter actually add up. And so I think the solution to this isn't try to control the sort of uncertainty levers that you will never be able to control, whether someone calls in sick, what the stock market looks like, what the COVID policies are going to be for your company, but right. really just go after the small daily things that we know can reduce your anxiety in a very bottom up way. If you physically feel more comfortable, if you walk into the workplace, like not stressed about parking, you're already in a much better place. And I think monitoring that along with like making sure we're not spreading our stress around to other people, not 
engaging in interactions with people when we're at our max stressed out, take a couple minutes to calm down, that actually can move the needle quite a bit. And I think we often go after the big things, but I feel like we should maybe put those aside for now and go after a bunch of little things instead. See what we can do there to try to make ourselves feel better, at least to keep us to a certain baseline of, you know, anxiety. And then we're much better equipped to then handle the big things when they do come. So Tessa, we're talking about uh, wisdom in the workplace. And we just talked about the seven types of jerk uh, at work, or types of jerk at work. And one question that comes up is, so what about the diversity? How important is it to have diverse work styles or opinions on the team? And how do we actually distinguish a jerk from somebody who just works or thinks differently from the way we do? Oh, I love this question. It's so tough. It's just, it's like you want, you need that diversity. And I think, so one of this, I'm going to sidestep your question for a minute, but I think one thing that's important is managing expectations about what diversity feels like at work. And I think diverse diversity of thought, of experience, of background, I think we all know that there's a, a good kind of bottom line argument for make, for doing these things, we make better decisions, you know, companies make more money, all that good stuff. But the reality is it's often uncomfortable and hard. And if we're right. honest with ourselves about that expectation, that this isn't going to necessarily feel good, it's going to feel uncomfortable, there's going to be like a temporary stressor on all of us once we decide to embrace that, then I think you can kind of help manage some of that. But I think to get to your question of like, is this diversity or, you know, is this just variability in work style or is this person really a jerk? I think clarity around kind of do's and don'ts, which sounds simple, but I think you have to have like some basic ground rules. And a lot of people don't actually do this past like third grade. You know, my son's nine and there's ground rules for his classroom. And I wish I had ground rules for meetings for faculty votes. (laughs) We just simply stopped doing this past a certain developmental age of sort of what is acceptable and unacceptable behaviors. And I think when people have clear ground rules and boundaries, they're actually much, they're much more tethered to sort of the reality of what is acceptable behavior and unacceptable behaviors because they can return to those ground rules, which were based on the opinions of lots of different perspectives. Like you don't want all your senior leaders creating the ground rules, right? You need those those diverse voices we've talked about before. But again, like just explicit policies about do's and don'ts. Here's what's acceptable. Here's what's not. If you interview someone in a meeting, you're going to get called out. It's probably going to be this person who calls you out. You know, these just simple rules actually keep people tethered to just a reality of what's acceptable and what's not. And it doesn't allow them to scapegoat. Like you're just, you just don't like me because I have a different working style than you is often a bit of a scapegoat. Um, You know, and I think, when you have slippery, ambiguous situations, we tend to cling to those biases, to these preconceived notions of what people ought to do. And the more you can call it specific behaviors and less about, you know, your attribution for someone's behavior, the better. So kind of a second thing I'd say to answer that question is when we criticize other people's behaviors at work, we often talk about sort of how we feel about them or what their intentions were. And I think you have to be specific about the behavior itself that was a problem. And when you have diversity voices, there's going to be a lot of behaviors that are, that the behaviors in and of themselves aren't problematic, but they're interpreted really differently depending on who's doing them. So the more you just right. focus on the specific behaviors and not what they meant by that, 
or how they said that thing or that they were trying to do X, Y, Z, the better off you are. And uh, this is definitely, you know, in the study of bias, I do a lot of research on bias. This is where it tends to really slip in um, and is used often as an excuse. Um, so that's a long-winded answer of like policies, procedures, rules about acceptable mm. behaviors, focusing on the specifics of what someone did, not what they meant by that, I think actually can really help people go get over that hump of what it's like to have diversity in a room. It's very hard, very hard to differentiate uh, the intention from the behavior of the person that you feel like either does something wrong or treats you wrong. Yeah, Where do we draw that line? It's really, really hard. And I think, you know, when it comes to reading people, most of us just jump right to the intention and we don't actually right. ask. And I think one reason why we don't ask, um, there's lots of reasons why we don't ask, but one of the main reasons is we assume that if we've known someone for long enough, we can accurately infer their intentions. And it actually gets awkward asking people why they said something or, you know, what they meant by that. If you've known them for a period of time where you feel like you should know the answer. Um, and, you know, kind of going back to that wisdom question you asked earlier, where I think wisdom is really getting over the fact that you probably don't know and just ask and, and make people help be accountable for what they said and did. Why did you say that? What did you mean by that? The two times I've actually pulled that in a faculty meeting when someone was being a little aggressive, why did you say that? What did you mean by that? They actually really took a step back and realized, oh, I didn't realize I was coming across a certain way. And those questions seem innocuous, but everybody knows they're not. <laughs> but they're but they're they're meant to just be thought provoking and to get people to be clearer in their expressions. I think that those can actually help a lot. Um, so yeah, you, you mentioned earlier about this idea of um, you know how uncertainty can lead to stress, um, and I think we can all relate to that. But you mentioned this idea of stress spreading from one person to another and you've done a bunch of work on this um, around the theme of effect contagion um, so it, could you just tell us a bit about this I think this is something people find really fascinating and quite surprising yeah so I've done a lot of studies with Wendy Mendez and, and others looking at how the emotions we feel walking into a social interaction so not even necessarily brought up with that person but prior to interacting with that person um, can then spread from one person to another so in a lot of our studies, what we actually do is bring strangers into the lab, sometimes close others. We stress out one person. They're alone. They do what's called a Trier, trier social stress test, which is just fancy for count backwards in increments of 13 in front of mean people. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I think I remember my, I think my granny had to do that as a, as a test to show that she wasn't suffering from early signs of dementia. Count, counting back in threes from 100. But, but there was no, oh, wow. Yeah. I can't believe they made her death. I know. But there was no audience stressful. in all fairness, so that's not, not so stressful. But still, I think I would, if someone was going to say I had dementia if I didn't get it right, it would create some stress. It's going to create stress and then you're going to have like some, you know, threat yeah. effects going on yeah. and people get really stressed. So we stress them out and then mm -hmm. we pair them up with another person. Mm -hmm. They don't do stressful things together. They play the game of taboo where they have a getting acquainted conversation and we look at their behaviors and we look at their physiology. And what we actually find is that people are pretty attuned to these nonverbal cues of stress and anxiety, things like fidgeting and avoiding eye contact, mm -hmm. touching their faces a lot. You know, um, face touching is a huge sign of stress. And we measure their sympathetic nervous system responses. And we show that people can actually start to show physiological synchrony with someone who's been stressed. Their moment-to-moment -moment changes in their sympathetic system, they start to sync up to the other persons. 
And, you know, when that other person is displaying these behavioral cues of stress, for instance, they're fidgeting a lot or they're, they have a shaky voice, you attend to that information and you kind of, we, we talk about how you catch that stress. You start to show parallel responses physiologically. And what's fascinating about this is this is happening completely outside of people's awareness. They have no idea that they're experiencing this kind of synchrony. If you ask them, they'll tell you, what are you talking about? And a lot of the cues they're picking up on are very subtle. We're not talking like screaming at the top of your lungs where you can feel your heart pounding. It's very subtle types of things that a lot of us experience at work. You know, you have a meeting with your boss. It doesn't go well. You walk out of the room. You have another meeting. Those people in that second meeting could be very susceptible to catching that stress from you if they're paying attention to you. They're watching your behaviors and show similar responses physiologically that you're showing, which could really add up over time. If you're around a lot of stressed people, you can imagine their heart rates are elevated. Your heart rates are elevated. They show increased blood pressure. So do you. That stuff adds up. 20 years of working alongside one of these people could definitely affect your health long term. Yeah, it's it's really surprising and, and fascinating. I and mean, we probably all experience it, but like you say, it's kind of under the level of consciousness. But like, um, what do we do about this? Like, um, is this is this sometimes good? In it's a, like a, a, an understandable response that we are getting in sync with the people we're with. Um, so, I mean, I guess in some cases it's good, and in some cases it's bad. Or is it? How do you see it? And and what can people do about it? Yeah, I think this is kind of a critical question. People always want to know, is physiological synchrony good or bad? And I think the answer is it's not really one or the other. It really depends on the situation. I think if you're around someone who's chronically stressed and you are motivated to pay attention to them and you know watch their behaviors, probably the best thing for you to do is to not actually be around them during those critical 10 minutes when they come out of that situation where they're stressed out. Kind of the good news is most of us actually return to baseline fairly quickly when we're stressed. We put people through this tree or task, the stress thing, we see elevated physiologic responses, but within say 15 minutes after, 10 minutes after, they tend to actually start to calm down and show baseline responses. Our bodies just won't stay that elevated. And so if you can kind of avoid this critical period right after, I think that can really help. I think, you know, stress is transmitted through a lot of channels. We've seen it through touch. It's probably also through smell, although this isn't something we've been able to actually uh, measure ourselves. But I think, you know, avoiding those affective responses that can be harmful to you, I think is important. But to get to your point of, you know, can it also be a good thing? Absolutely. Being in tune with other people is really good. You know, being able to predict people's behavior is good. And, you know, some of our work has shown that racial minorities, Black Americans, they show physiological synchrony to whites when those white Americans are displaying these signs of anxiety and discomfort, probably because they're attuned to subtle indicators of racial bias, that they're like, oh, I can pick up on this. I'm attentive to this. I'm attuned to this. And now I'm going to be better at predicting what this type of person is going to say and do towards me. And there's a lot of utility to that, to being able to predict people's behaviors. And I think in other contexts, you want that synchrony. You know, you want to show that people... Um, are showing similar levels of elevated, you know, um, sympathetic responding in moments that really call for close attention. Like we're doing a study with surgeons right now who are operating, they're doing transplants. You know, are people synchronized to that surgeon when they're the most stressed out versus the least? And is that a good or bad thing? So, you know, it's really a measure of attunement attention. And in some situations, that's really good. It could be both. It could be great for the relationship. You're able to predict this person, you're in line, you're in sync with them, you can help them, but it's terrible for your body. 
right? Because being stressed all the time is not great. And I think we see this with young infants showing contagion, you know, being showing physiological synchrony to their mothers who are stressed. So it doesn't even need to be this kind of higher order cognitive effect where you're, you know, intentionally motivated to attend to someone. Babies do this. So it can be very low level cues too. And I think just understanding that um, is important. But yeah, I, I think it's a mix of good and bad. And I think it really depends on what your end goal is. Have you, have you, you know, since having done this work, is it something that you're more aware of in your own experience or is it just it exists still below the level of consciousness? I am definitely aware of when I'm experiencing a lot of stress at work and how it impacts my family. And I think, so the, the first paper that I, I wrote with, um, with Winnie Mendes and Sarah Waters on this was about infant stress contagion. And I wrote it, you know, this is like we stress mom to hang out with their six-month-olds. The six-month-olds start to show these elevated physiologic responses. I had just had a baby then and I was going through tenure and like, I had this very like meta experience of like, Oh shit. Like I know (laughs) I'm oozing the stress and I could, my kid would cry when I was stressed and I, maybe I overthought it, but I definitely now I try to be more aware of when I'm really stressed. I won't, you know, if I'm coming out of something that I know will be stressful for me, a really high stakes meeting, I won't book something right after I will give myself 20 minutes to go get a coffee or, or just to chill out before I introduce another person into my life because I don't want them to be potentially susceptible to that. I, I do put stops in place to kind of prevent it from happening. That's that's fascinating because I was thinking of it from the other way around, you know, it, like how do I avoid getting receiving stress from other people? But actually the way you're talking about it, it's like we almost have a responsibility to, you know, as the originator of the stress to to put in the buffers so it doesn't spread to other people. That's a, that's a very sensible and mature way of thinking about it. That's probably how I should have been thinking about it. But yeah, it's a No, good point. but <laughs> I think you're right. And I think, you know, when it comes to catching it from other people, the one thing we know, especially at work, is when someone's stressed, the first thing they want to do is go talk to their best friend at work about it. Right. And if someone approaches you and they're interrupting whatever you're doing to talk about the thing they're stressed over, you just need to have an action plan of what you're going to say. And it could be something like, I would love to talk to you about this. Can you come back in 30 minutes? You know, when I actually can right. then prepare for that, um, you know, instead of allowing them to kind of just dump all of their stress on you in, in that moment, which is what feels good for them, but is not very good for you. Um, and I think just putting those little steps in place can actually really help protect you as well from from catching everybody else's stress. It seems to me that what, what what's really uniting both of those perspectives from, you know, like you being stressed and other people seeing somebody and how to avoid the situation is this sense of metacognitive awareness of the situation that you're in and the state that you're in or the state that the other person is in. And maybe that's what uh, the wise affect uh, regulation in the context of contagion is about. Yeah. That uh, you really know uh, what state you're in and sort of try to, to sort of navigate that situation and try to maybe go for coffee instead of right away uh, having the next meeting. Yeah, I mean, there's this kind of running joke among affective sciences. Well, like if you can feel it in your body, it's really bad. Um, so <laughs> if, if you can feel your heart pounding and your palms sweating, then you're showing like a very extreme physiologic response. And so chances are it could be way less than that. And you really have to identify the situations and not just rely on, you know, your ability to read your body and what your body is saying. I think we're often unaware of how we look to other people, what our nonverbals are. So just know what situations stress you out and 
build your behaviors around those situations instead of around how you feel. Tessa, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about your fascinating research. So where can we find your book? You can find my book at tessawestauthor.com. So there we'll give you links to any and all interviews I've done on this, links to where you can purchase my book. I have some quizzes on there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find out if you're a jerk at work, you'll get some feedback. And then you could also go to tessawestlab.com if you want to read about any of the research that I've talked about on the show. Charles, we just had Tessa West on uh, the show, talked about a lot of things. Uh, I'm curious, which of the jerks did you associate yourself with the most? <laughs> well, Igor, I didn't, need, <laughs> I didn't need to figure this out at this stage because I had been to Tessa's website to do the test to identify which kind of jerk I was ahead of time. Okay. I did okay. my research. And so what did, the, what um, did it say? It, well, basically, I think I tricked the question that I could, could figure out which was the nice art person and I just clicked that all the time so I probably <laughs> didn't do it very accurately um, but um, oof, oof, I did, I'd see bits of myself in all of those I think probably I yeah. gaslighter sorry the gaslighter I don't no, know I was going to say that one that one seems like a different category like quite sinister that, that's like the, yeah very psychotic yeah yeah so probably not that um uh, but um, I think bits of all of them. I mean, so I, I guess what was interesting to me was there was a, a kind of interesting tension. She was, I was thinking about um, Barry Schwartz, Barry Schwartz talking about the, the danger of rules and people relying on rules. Right. And then she was talking yeah. about the, the, the benefit of rules and how it's very yeah. important. So there's a, a kind of an interesting tension there because um, she spoke yeah. about that twice. One, one in the... Um, you know, how could you make a wiser society section? It's like we need, as organizations, we need to have stricter rules that we then adhere to, not stricter rules, but rules that we actually follow. And then when she was talking about, um, you know, uh, how do we, how do we distinguish like a diverse kind of thinking versus someone who's just being a jerk? She said, well, we need a set of sort of protocols that we all adhere to. So that enables people Mm -hmm. to just go back to those, um, you know, to feel comfortable. We've got these sets of rules that you might have in, in uh, infant school. So a couple of times she, she uh, stressed the importance of having a a set of rules that everyone understands, uh, buys into and actually follows through on. And that's, little that's kind of sits slightly aside from what a lot of people have said in terms of the wisdom work which i thought was interesting yeah yeah i mean i think uh, tessa is all about consistency and somehow creating the situations that will not freak you out so Mm. that you will not become this jerk uh Mm. that then bulldozes others or you know tries to get credit where it doesn't belong and so Mm. on Mm. Uh, um and i think uh that's really interesting because it's a very different perspective so that yeah. you will uh, essentially create the environment or structure the environment or recognize how you can structure the environment in such a way that you will not affect others in an adverse fashion or you will not affect yourself in an adverse fashion in the long term. Yeah, for sure. And the 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 conversation around uncertainty was very interesting as well. Yeah, yes, yeah, so that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Right. So, like, that's, you know, but, but I, I didn't quite understand that. So, for me, for instance, if we were to push back, um, I, I do think that it's not really about avoiding uncertainty as much as it's about managing it. So maybe mm-hmm. that's a better term because uh, sometimes it is really unavoidable and, uh, 
it's about training yourself, being at peace with it. And one way to do it, uh, as uh, emotional regulation suggests, is to uh, select situations um, that uh, would calm you down or where you can take a walk and whatever. And another way to do it is through a more mindful, deliberate process of changing the frame of mind or changing mm. the way you think about the situation. Mm. Mm. Um, and uh, it's as viable as the first one. The first one is a bit easier because you just avoid being in those situations in the first place. I think, yeah, it felt like there was a distinction she was making between um, like uh, uncertainty in small things like the structure of your day and that's yeah. apart from like existential uncertainty about yeah, the nature yeah. of and reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. like this too, too 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 philosophical for uh, yeah. the show today maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um so so uh, what kind of jerk are you? I mean, I think uh yeah, I'm not going to oh, say. Oh man. Anything. Um <laughs> um definitely a bulldozer like I mean, I think a lot of academics a whole like uh successful academics uh, not that I'm that successful, but yeah, like anybody who wants to be successful, let's move it this way, right. uh, uh, is a bit of a bulldozer or task oriented manager, uh, is another mm-hmm. term from classic that's a classic bulldozer psychology. language. Yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> um, I think sometimes in retrospect, I don't know if I was a credit stealer, no, mm-hmm. no, but but uh, micromanager for sure. Mm. Yeah, and that's it's a it's a it's a disease of uh, people who just start managing groups or having like people whom they work with who are working under them. That at the beginning you're kind of always micromanaging. Mm. I think uh, uh, I don't know anybody who is not micro. I mean, there may be one or two people who are really easygoing who are not mm. micromanaging, and uh, almost always there is this transition, at least in academia. Uh, towards somewhat less micromanaging over time. Right. What, what if you, you mean, are capable you, of learning. You mean individuals do become less micromanaging over time? Yeah, yeah. Right. So like assistant professors are almost always more micromanaging than uh, those folks who then, you know, been around for a little bit longer. Right. Makes sense. Um, I, I think for me, the, the most surprising little twist was that thing that came at the very end around stress contagion and around Mm -hmm. how like potentially we should take some responsibility over Mm -hmm. being contagious and spreading our uh, affect to other people and uh, and like i said i only thought of it as like how do i avoid receiving it from other people but like if you have had a stressful meeting you probably shouldn't interact with anyone you should probably just take yourself away for a little bit and just go get a coffee or have a drink um uh, Horrible over the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, how can you? Right, like you're in the, stuck in the house with somebody, and then yeah. your partner comes, and you're like, "I just had this meeting," and yeah, you start yeah. screaming like an idiot. Yeah, uh, just because uh, you and yeah, how? Uh, we, I mean, yeah, we're kind of compelled to. Um, communicate with people in those moments like yeah. you want to get it off your chest like get it yes. off you and give it to someone that's else. right that's right yeah and you don't know what to do as a partner either right, like, right. Do, do you do you want a massage yeah. do, you want, do you want a coffee yeah do, <laughs> Just, you how to can be, i help i want you to be affected by my stress yeah. <laughs> yeah but you know another thing that i was thinking about this affect contagion um so i was trying to play it in my head i i, I was putting the hat of being a former dancer sure. and in the ballroom dancing it's like 
well, would I want to have exactly the same emotional experiences as my partners so or like, like mimicking what they're sure. experiencing in the moment? And like at the, on the and the first reaction was like yeah that would be beneficial because mm. then we can be totally in sync. Yeah. But then it's like but wait a second. But then you at the same time you're simulating some kind of a story in the dance. It's not like that the person has to do exactly the same thing. In fact, that's a mistake. Mm. Uh, you want the person, the other person, to act and react. So you have this right. kind of tag and pull type of thing, which means that you cannot have exactly the same experience if the man is showing this or whatever, mm. the one partner is showing this, mm. the other person is reacting to it. Mm. Uh, so the exact sort of like the, the, so there is a contagion, but the contagion is not taking form of a simple mimicry mm. or simulation of the same type of affective mm. experience, mm. but rather the reaction mm. to whatever the one person may be expressing in the given moment. Which is a very different form of effect contagion, I think, than we have discussed in the show so far. Um, anyways, yeah. it also seems very complicated. Uh, uh, then I realized, well, I don't really know if it would be beneficial to really feel instead of just showing, like as if you're like as a good sort of performance, yeah. uh, sort of act to show some emotions, but not to feel them, just to right. feel them. Yeah, because you also, I don't in performance sometimes it is a performance right the emotional component is is trained like it's not it's not a real emotion yeah i mean you don't want to go full stanislavski during your rumba <laughs> no because, uh, that could be know, good <laughs> it could be but it could also be incredibly painful yeah all right well it was it was good it was like i felt like we stepped into some new territory there and and also um a territory that's very useful and people want to know more about and have practical insights from so you know it's great having tessa on the show <laughs>